The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We were speaking this morning about the unity of Isaiah, and one of the most important questions connected with the study of the book of Isaiah is the identity of the figure who appears in the second part of the prophecy and is designated the servant of the Lord. It would be impossible, I suppose, for any one man to read everything that's been written on this subject, for people are writing constantly upon it and coming up with, well, I would say variations upon old ideas. They really aren't saying anything very new about the identity. But at any rate, uh, this is a question that is in the very forefront of discussion. In the 42nd chapter, the servant is introduced by the Lord, who says, Behold my servant, I uphold him. And in the first few verses of the 42nd chapter, (coughs) the servant is pictured as performing a work of deliverance and blessing, of bringing blessing to all mankind. And what is emphasized here is the successful outcome of the servant's work. Now, the very context makes it clear that this is not merely the nation Israel. In the 41st chapter, the nation itself, the empirical nation, had been identified as the servant of the Lord. But at this point, the very language, the context, shows that something more than the historical nation is intended. There is a uniqueness about the introduction of the servant. It is God who speaks and says, Behold my servant. It is God who shows that he has a peculiar interest and concern about the servant. And then the servant is set forth as performing a work that no mere nation in itself could perform. The servant is to bring religion or truth or judgment to the isles, to the whole world, in fact, and he is to be successful. The manner in which he works is hinted at, at least. He will not cry nor lift up his voice. The smoking flax he will not quench, the bruised reed he will not break, and he will continue until he is successful in his work. And this is followed by a doxology in which the God of Israel is glorified. <coughs> now the prophet in these, in these chapters is seeking to convince Israel that her only hope of deliverance lies in the Lord. I pointed out very briefly in the last hour that... Uh, Isaiah does indeed look forward in the spirit of prophecy and sees his people in bondage. They are in Babylonian bondage. I think that is true. I don't think we gain anything by denying that there is a Babylonian reference in these chapters. This has been greatly overdone, however. The references to Babylon in this section are not as frequent as those in the earlier part of the book. And some critics take every phrase that they can and seem to get a Babylonian reference out of that. That, I think, is not right, and I think it can be greatly overdone, but I do believe we should acknowledge that there is a Babylonian background there. Isaiah then sees that his people will be in bondage to Babylon, but the great lesson which they have to learn is that their God is able to save them, 
that salvation is of the Lord. In the 40th chapter, Israel is pictured as saying, My way is hid from my God, which seems to imply that God no longer has any concern about Israel, that God has somehow hidden himself from his nation, and what Israel does is not known to God. God is not interested in Israel. Well, that, of course, is not the truth. The Lord remonstrates with the nation in these chapters and shows that he has not abandoned the nation. He has not given up any of the promises that he made, but it is the sins of the nation that have hid the nation from God. He asks, where is the bill of divorcement? As though Israel had been complaining that he, the husband, had divorced her, the spouse. But not at all. Nothing like that has taken place. It is Israel's own sin that has hidden her from God. And that truth has to be inculcated. Furthermore, Israel has to have a right view of her God. She can no longer look upon God as though he were simply one of the idols, like one of the gods of the other nations. And so in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, in a remarkable fashion, the prophet introduces a number of rhetorical questions who has done this, and so on, and then brings about the answer to these questions in the 41st chapter, it is I, uh, the Jehovah, the God of Israel, must be seen as the God of heaven and earth. Now the critics tell us that in these chapters, monotheism is presented in the most clear form that we find it anywhere in Scripture. I don't know that that is true or not. Uh, a person can be a monotheist without stating the whole doctrine of monotheism every time that he speaks. And there is certainly nothing in the Bible to show that Moses or any of the saints of God were ever anything but monotheists. But here, the Isaiah delights in deriding the idols. He wishes to point out to Israel that the idols are vain. Now, these are not merely the idols of Babylon. They are all idols. For the nation was concerned with idolatry, and the nation was an idolatrous nation which regarded its own God as nothing more than one of the gods. And so Isaiah does engage in irony in condemning the idols. He points out that they are not able to predict past things, and they are not able to predict, uh, to speak of past things, and they are not able to predict future things. They are idols that are the creation of men's hands. Uh, a man cuts down a tree, and with part of the wood he furnishes an idol, and with the other part of the wood he warms himself. He builds a fire, and he says, Aha, I have seen the fire, and I am warm. Fortunately for the idol, the, par the uh, wood that goes to make up the idol was not used to warm man. And then man bows down to this thing that his hands have created, and wants that idol to deliver him. And so I, Isaiah points out the utter folly of idolatry, the folly of bowing down to anything that the hands of man have created. And he shows that Jehovah is not one of these idols, but Jehovah is the creator. And in these chapters, we have some of the most beautiful statements concerning the doctrine of creation and the absolute superiority of the Lord over all that he has made. Isaiah's purpose is to exalt God in order that Israel may see that her God is unique. Her God is not just an idol. Her God is the true God. Now, she also has a function to perform which she has failed to perform. 
Israel was to have been God's servant in the sense that Israel was to have exemplified to the world the fact that the true God dwelt in her midst. Israel failed at that. She was not a servant. And so there must be a servant who will embody all that Israel should have been, who would be Israel in the finest sense. And that servant is introduced to us in chapter 42. <laughs> now I say that the very context, the very language that is used here, makes it clear that the prophet is speaking of something more than the historical nation of Israel. Having introduced the servant of the Lord then in this one particular passage, the prophet goes on to show that God still has a love for his people, that he comforts them, that in time of trouble he will be present with them, and he shows them that there will be a deliverance. They are in bondage, yes, and they will be delivered from this bondage by the instrumentality of Cyrus. Now Cyrus was a Persian king. Cyrus first appeared upon this scene as a ruler of a small district known as Anshan. And then he conquered Parsua, and finally the entirety of what we today call Persia or Iran was his. He came down into the Mesopotamian valley, and finally he overthrew Babylon in 539 or 538 B.C. Now it would appear that Cyrus would certainly in the course of time overthrow Babylon. Nothing seemed to be able to stand in the way of his conquest. And the critical view, of course, is that the author of these chapters realized that Cyrus was engaged in these conquests, and so he uh, more or less guessed, gave a good guess, that Cyrus would set the people free. Even at that, however, it's not very likely that uh, a man can guess about a thing like that. Uh, history is so strange that uh, we just are going out on a limb when we guess as to what is going to take place tomorrow. I'm always reminded of what happened in our country on the eve of one of the elections when the one of the large city papers came out with the headlines, Dewey elected, and by the time morning had come around, they had to call in all those papers because Dewey hadn't been elected. So that uh, in a case like that where it seemed almost to be a sure thing, Human guessing is not always the best. We simply don't know what the morrow will bring forth. And consequently, even if you say that this Isaiah or second Isaiah was guessing as to what Cyrus would do, the best you can say is that he made a very good guess. Or you can say even here what the critics don't want to say, and that is that you have real predictive prophecy. You see, they have a problem here. Uh, we're not the only people with problems, people who believe the Bible. Uh, the ones that have the real problems are the ones who reject the Bible. And they don't realize always that they have these problems. But if some second Isaiah lived just before the downfall of Babylon, I would submit either he had to guess, and he made a pretty good guess, and if that's all his prophecies are, or guesses, then I can't see that they're much better than newspaper reports, columnists' reports, or else there was predictive prophecy even then of only a few years. Now, some critics will admit that that was the case, but most of them don't want to do that. But it seems to me that that is the difficulty that you have. 
unless you adopt the view of doom and say that second, second Isaiah was never in Babylon at all. Then, of course, you have these references to Chaldea and Babylonia, five of them. So what do you do with those? Well, there are some who get away from that very easily. They simply say, cross those references out. They don't belong in there. And you can get uh, out of the difficulty that way if you want to. But you begin thinking this thing through, and you realize that alternative explanations have a great many difficulties that they have to answer. Now, let's go back, however, and assume that Isaiah, in the spirit of prophecy, is seeing his people in bondage. They are to be delivered by Cyrus. Cyrus did come down, he did catch, capture Babylon, he did permit the Jews to return to Palestine. We know that from the first chapter of the book of Ezra. Very well. <coughs> the passage in Isaiah which speaks of Cyrus is found in the last few verses, the last four verses of chapter 44 and the first couple of verses of chapter 45. Now here, Isaiah introduces Cyrus in a rather remarkable way. He divides this little prophecy into three sections or strophes. In the first, he speaks of the Lord as the creator of all things, who stretched out the earth and so on, who was with me. The first strophe refers to the ultimate past, to the creation. The second strophe, who frustrates the signs of liars and so on, speaks of contemporary events. Now, there is a peculiar construction for these in the Hebrew language. It is very artistically arranged. The second strophe speaks of contemporary events. The third strophe speaks of the future, when Cyrus will come. And just as the first strophe pointed way back to the creation, so we expect the third strophe to point forward to something in the distant future. In other words, what I'm getting at is that Isaiah does not make it appear that Cyrus is a contemporary, but rather that he was someone who will appear in the distant future. I find it very difficult to escape the force of that argument. The deliverance is to take place in the future. If a so-called second Isaiah were writing this, why did he make it appear that Cyrus would come in the far distant future? What was his point of appeal to the creation and then to contemporary events and then to Cyrus? Why did he do that? If Isaiah is the author, this fits in very beautifully. But you see, that raises the question, how could Isaiah, way back in the 8th century before Christ, or if you want to put it in the very latter part of the 7th century before Christ, while Hezekiah was still upon the throne, how could Isaiah possibly have mentioned the name of Cyrus as he did? Well, uh, different attempts at explanation are made on a naturalistic basis, uh, some appeal to the prophecies of Nostra Nostradamus and so on? That is no answer at all. I think we should simply say that on his own, Isaiah never could have thought of the name of Cyrus. Of course he couldn't. Uh, you and I can't very well name some individual that's going to appear upon the scene of history about 160 years from now. Uh, it would certainly be a good guesser that could do that, and that's no explanation at all. This, it seems to me, brings us to the very heart of the whole matter in dealing with the Old Testament prophets. That is, did God really reveal his truth to the prophets, or did he not? If you are going to regard the prophet 
as nothing more than a kind of a soothsayer whose messages were always directed only to the people of his own day and who was a sort of a forerunner of the social gospel and nothing more than that, well, that's one thing. If that's what they were, I frankly think they were a rather uninteresting group because it seems to me that a lot of these socialistic schemes, whatever else you may say about them, they're not very thrilling. And if that is all that the prophets did was sort of preach the social gospel, an ethical message telling people that they ought to be good, that isn't particularly interesting and exciting. And of course, if that's all they were, Isaiah never could have mentioned the name of Cyrus. That's perfectly true. But if the prophets did receive special divine revelation, and here again we must presuppose Christian theism, if, and that is the basic question right then and there, if the prophets did receive their word from the triune God, why could not God have put this name in the mouth of Isaiah? Why could he not have done that? Well, you say it isn't done elsewhere. Well, not quite on this scale, although there was a prophecy concerning the birth of Josiah. But why could not God have done this? And that is really the question. Now, it may seem a strange thing, it may be a difficult thing to believe, but I don't see any other explanation than that. And I personally have no hesitation in believing it. I think that God did put this message into the mouth of Isaiah. And Isaiah spoke about Cyrus. Now, a number of the critics say that Cyrus did not fulfill the anticipations of Second Isaiah. Second, uh, Cyrus didn't do all that he was supposed to do. And so the prophet was disillusioned and disappointed. And the prophet then turned to say that the real deliverance would come through another figure, the servant of the Lord. Now, Cyrus did conquer Babylon. And Cyrus did issue the decree which permitted the disciples, to, the, the Jews, to return home. And so with this decree, they could go back to Jerusalem. They could begin the work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city, which is what many of them wanted to do. I cannot see that Cyrus did not fulfill all that Isaiah had predicted concerning him. There is that Babylonian background then that I've mentioned. But that is not the entirety of these chapters. These chapters point out that this Babylonian background or Babylonian exile is simply symbolical of the deeper bondage and the deeper exile in which the people of God had fallen. And that is the point that is overlooked by a great many critics. And the deep bondage into which the people had fallen was spiritual in nature. It was a bondage of iniquity. It was a bondage of sin. It was this very thing which separated the people from God and which precluded him from looking with favor upon them. And the people must learn that they are in this condition. They must abandon their efforts to try to deliver themselves through false religion or through their own human works. They must realize that it is only Jehovah, their God, who can overcome all obstacles who can bring them back to himself, who can see, show them that they are his people. They must learn these lessons. And that is why Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord. Now, in chapter 45, these truths are stressed even more prominently. And in chapter 46, in almost triumphant fashion, 
the prophet shows that the gods of Babylon have fallen. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. The language seems to mean that the statues of these gods have fallen over and the gods have to be carried away, that the people may see that their deliverance is not to come from that source. In chapter 49, after the first section of the book has concluded at the end of chapter 48, where it says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The servant of the Lord appears again. This time the servant of the Lord is not introduced by the Lord, but the servant of the Lord is introduced as speaking, as soliloquizing. And he complains that in vain he has expended his toil. Now there is, however, in this passage, a very interesting statement in verse 3, where the Lord says, Thou art my servant, Israel, in whom I shall be glorified. And it's that word Israel which causes the problem right here. Those who hold to the individualistic interpretation of the servant are bothered by this word. Now, some of them are not bothered. You see, this word gets in the way of a theory, and so they say it doesn't belong there. And they cut it out. But there is no objective textual warrant for cutting it out. We can't do that with the Bible. When it says something we don't like, we just can't cut it out. Uh, if you carry that out in principle, you would find that whenever the Bible condemned any sin that you wanted to engage in, you just say that isn't the original reading, and then go ahead and sin. And that's exactly the sort of thing that this is. Not that these men want to sin morally, but they do sin in that they want to hold to a theory, even though the scripture speaks contrary to it. And so there are some who simply say, cut out this word Israel, because the servant is an individual, and it can't be a group. Now, I would like to present this position right now. I think the servant is an is individual, yes. It is the Messiah. But it is a somewhat of a complex personality that is presented. It is the Messiah conceived as the head of his people. Sometimes the people are brought to the fore. As when Paul in the 13th chapter of Acts quotes from this servant passage in Isaiah 42 and applies that to the apostolic ministry. At other points it is the Messiah as head that is in the fore. And that is true in chapters 50 and 53. Here I think that the passage means just what it says. Israel is the servant of the Lord. But that does not mean that sinful nation Israel. It simply means the Israel as she should be, the people of God. And that, I think, is the only explanation we can give of this word. And so the servant here complains that he has expended his labor for naught, and the Lord makes clear to him that he is not only to bring back the dispersed of Israel, but all the Gentiles, all, he is a light to lighten the Gentiles. The whole world is to receive blessing through the ministry of this servant. Now in chapter 50, again he appears, and he shows that he had to undergo physical suffering. Here the Messiah appears as the servant, and that element is stressed. He says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those that plucked out the hair. And then he challenges anyone to stand with him and says, let us stand together. Therefore he has set his face as a flint, for the Lord is with him. Who is he that can stand against me? 
Now we have seen a certain progression. Chapter 42 speaks of the successful outcome of the servant's work. Chapter 49 hints that there is difficulty. Chapter 50 shows that there is physical persecution. But the reason for this has not yet been given, and the reason for this is reserved for the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This chapter tells us why it is that the servant had to suffer. Now, before we look at this chapter, just a word about the question of identity a bit further. Up until fairly recent times, there have been two major interpretations of the identity of the servant. One is called the individualistic view, and that simply means that it finds the servant as an individual. The other is called the collectivistic view, and that means, of course, that it finds the servant as a group of people. You remember that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading this passage, Isaiah 53, and his question to Philip was very interesting. Of whom, he says, of whom speaketh the prophet these things? Does he speak of himself? Or does he speak of another man? Now, all that the eunuch could think about was that the prophet was speaking of an individual. There seems to be no hint in his thought that the prophet might be speaking about a group of people. Is he speaking about himself? Or is he speaking about another man? And that is the first presentation of this individualistic view. And by the way... Philip responded to that by preaching Jesus from this very passage. Somebody has said that that's the wrong interpretation, that all Philip did was take this passage and then preach Jesus. Now, maybe we do that. Maybe we take a text and then get away from it right away, but I don't think we have any right to accuse Philip of having done that. He preached Jesus from this very passage. He very clearly gave the individualistic view, and that is the view of the New Testament, and that has been the traditional view in the Christian church, that this is a direct predictive prophecy of Jesus Christ, of Christ conceived as the head of his body, the church. There have been others proposed, however, as the, uh, the servant of the Lord, and some of these identifications are rather preposterous. Uh, there have been different theories set forth that it is one of the prophets. Some have said that it was Isaiah himself. A book came out some time ago which maintained that the servant was Second Isaiah and that Second Isaiah was writing him about himself. Now, there's one thing. If you write a book, you can be sure that there are some reviewers who are waiting to pounce on any error that you may make. And sure enough, as soon as this book came out, somebody said, if Second Isaiah is writing about it himself, how do you explain the fact that he died and lived again? He knew that that never happened to himself. Well... The author always has refuge, if he's fortunate, in a second edition. So in the second edition, he changed his position a little bit. He said that the servant is still second Isaiah, but it's not second Isaiah writing about himself, it's third Isaiah writing about second Isaiah. So that explained the difficulty there. A number of figures in the history of Israel have been suggested. Jeremiah, uh, Meshulam, others have been brought forth. Uh, the theory was presented by the late Ernest Selene that the figure here was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was taken into the, out of the land of the living. He said meant that he was taken into captivity to Babylon. And Zedekiah, <coughs> and then uh, it has also been held that the servant of the Lord was Moses that was martyred. And uh, 
Finally, that I think that the last view was that it is indeed Second Isaiah. But different views have been presented along this line. The collectivistic view is simply that it refers to a group of people, mainly the nation Israel. Others have said that it refers to the prophets of Israel, to the better class of Israel, and to the ones who survived the exile and so on. The fundamental difficulty with all of this is that what Isaiah says about Israel elsewhere doesn't agree with what is said about the servant here. Israel is rebellious and hard-hearted and recalcitrant. The servant suffers willingly. Israel was a sinful nation. The servant suffers for the sins of others. And furthermore, the language of Isaiah 53 is so individualistic that it's hard to regard it as in any sense a personification. Now, since the Second World War and since the presence of existentialism and irrationalism in philosophy and in thought generally, a different type of interpretation has made its appearance. One view maintains that the servant is really a composite figure, that the origins of the figure go back to the old kingship views held in the ancient Near East, that they go back to the idea of corporate personality, that the people and the ancestor of the people are regarded as one, that they go back to the rites of Tammuz as celebrated in Babylon. And so one writer has said that the servant is neither past, present, nor future, yet he is past, present, and future, that it is neither an individual nor a group, but it is both an individual and a group. What appeals to me about that is that it's so clear. You know exactly what he's saying. <coughs> Others have said that this is a myth, and that the myth was an account that was recited annually in the cult of Israel, that the origin of this myth may be difficult to determine, and the identity of the figure may be difficult to determine, but annually this was recited in the cult in Israel. It was simply a myth, and in time Jesus Christ found that the myth came to fulfillment or expression in his own life. Not that he fulfilled predictive prophecy, for we are told that would involve a mechanistic view of the universe, but that in his life this myth really found concrete expression. There was a curve, we are told, from the, that separated the Hebrews from the Greeks. With the Greeks, the myth finally became uh, logos, that is, reason. The old mythology gave way to the reason of the philosophers. With the Hebrews, the myth became sarks, or flesh, and that found its expression in Jesus Christ. It is a so-called correspondence theory that the life of Jesus corresponded to what is described in Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 53 is not a predictive prophecy of the life of Christ. Now, that sort of thing, of course, is very interesting, but you can see that it's influenced by the modern theology and philosophy of the day. It certainly is not the teaching of the Bible at all. And so there have been many uh, views presented to, ide to identify the servant of the Lord. There are a couple of points that I would like to make clear right at the outset, and that is that in the Bible, salvation is always the work of God and never of man. And what you have in Isaiah 53 is a spiritual salvation. It is a deliverance from the guilt and the power of sin. And man cannot accomplish that himself. 
Now, those points seem to me sufficient to rule out any identification of the servant other than to identify him with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone could fulfill what is predicted in Isaiah 53. The nation could not do that. Even the best in the nation could not do that. The prophets could not do that. The idea that this is simply a myth recited in the cult may be very interesting. There is no evidence to support that at all. And furthermore, that idea is too superficial. It does not point out that the real deliverance that is described in Isaiah 53 is a deliverance from the guilt and power of sin. <coughs> now this fourth servant passage begins with the 52nd chapter of Isaiah and the 13th verse. And it goes on through chapter 53, verse 12. If you look at this passage, you will see that 52, 13 through 15 serves as an introduction to the entire passage, and 53, 10b to the end serves as a conclusion of the entire passage. Now, the introduction and the conclusion are both in the future. It is clear that they are describing an individual that has not yet appeared upon the scene of history. And furthermore, chapter 53 is future from chapter 42. So this sets the pace, as it were. The setting is in the future. Now, in the body of the passage, that is chapter 52, 1 through 10a, all of the verbs are in the perfect, or the past in Hebrew. That does not mean that this comes from a different source. It does not mean that the prophet is talking about something that has already occurred. But it does mean that he is describing the future as so certain of occurrence that he describes it as already past. This is what is called the prophetic perfect. <coughs> Just as though someone were to say to you, will you do this for me? You say, consider it done. It's done when it hasn't yet been done. But you are so sure that it is going to be done that you use the past in describing it. And that is the way we must interpret these verbs. Now, what shows us that that is the case is that if you refer this to something that has happened in the past, then the prophecy simply makes no sense. What figure is there in the history of Israel that fits the description that is given in Isaiah 53? It does not fit Moses. You cannot say that Moses was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. That does not apply to Moses. It does not apply to any figure in the history of Israel. It certainly does not apply to Hezekiah. And if you apply this to some figure in the past, the great problem is, who is that figure? And furthermore, if you apply it to someone in the past, how do you explain that the introduction and the conclusion of the passage are in the future? No, that is no way out of our difficulty. When we look at the introduction, we find the statement, Behold, which again calls our attention to a passage of unusual significance. Behold, my servant will deal prudently. He shall be extolled and exalted and be very high. Now, again, the servant is identified as God's servant, and it is said he will deal prudently. Now, the word that is used there may be pronounced yaskil, 
And some who favor the theory that the references to Israel say that there is an error in the text here and it should be Yisrael, which sounds almost alike. But there is no textual evidence to support that sort of thing. Uh, we have to be careful that we do not allow ourselves to obscure facts if they happen to stand in the way of our theories. What we must strive to do is to see what the Bible teaches, not try to make it teach what we want it to teach. And many of these critics are guilty of that very thing. Now this word means that the prophet will use, the, that the servant will use the best means to accomplish the highest ends. He will be eminently successful in what he does. And then three words are given to show his exaltation. He will be exalted, literally he will rise, he will be lifted up, and he will be very high. Now it's understandable that someone would think of the threefold exaltation of our Lord, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session at the right hand of the Father. For the third verb is a stative verb, he will be very high. It describes a condition and not action. But I rather think that the purpose here is to show that a fullness of exaltation will come upon the servant. And thus he is introduced. He will be greatly exalted. And the reason for that is that men have misunderstood him and misunderstood the purpose of his work. Immediately the prophet turns to address him, even as many were astonished at thee, he says. Now here is a contrast, the many and the one, and that is a messianic characteristic in the Bible. So right away we realize we are dealing with the Messiah. Many were astonished at thee. Now our English word astonish has really been deprived of most of its meaning. What is meant here is that they will be awestruck, paralyzed as it were, by the conviction that the servant whom they behold is punished by God for his sins. They will be awestruck when they see the servant, for they will think he is suffering for his own sins. As many were astonished at thee, <coughs> the reason is then given, so disfigured is he from men and is formed from the sons of men, uh, from man and is formed from the sons of men, that simply means that he appears to be so disfigured that he no longer resembles a man. It does not mean that he is more disfigured than any other man, but he is so disfigured, disfigured to the extent that he no longer resembles a man. And that is the reason they are astonished at him. And then an explanation is given, so shall he sprinkle many nations. In this condition he will sprinkle many nations. That is, he will perform the work of a priest. He will uh, perform a purifying, expiating work as the priest sprinkled blood and oil on the altar, so he will sprinkle many nations performing this expiatory work. <coughs> now, there has been through the ages a great deal of opposition to this translation, and men have said that the word means almost anything but sprinkle. And they have amended the text here in a really a tremendous fashion. Almost everybody seems to think that whatever the text says, it's wrong and something else should be there. When the Dead Sea Scroll was first discovered, I wrote and asked concerning the reading at this point. And the editor very kindly sent back the reading, and the reading is precisely what we have right here.
so shall he sprinkle many nations. And I am very happy to say that Dr. Meilenberg, in his commentary on this part of Isaiah, is willing to adopt this rendering. I think that's a very fine thing. The pendulum is beginning to swing, apparently, and men realize that they cannot abandon this reading simply because they don't like it. What lies in back of this strange unanimity seems to me to be a desire to get away from this clear reference to the expiatory work of the servant. But the text says he will sprinkle many nations, and the result will be that even kings will shut their mouths at him. Kings who represent the people will fall down in awe, will be awestruck at him when they are told the message concerning his suffering and the reason therefore. This, then, is the introduction to the passage. The prophet goes right on and begins by asking the question, Who hath believed our report and the arm of the Lord upon whom has it been revealed? Now, the our report here, I think, refers to what we declare concerning the servant. I think you may paraphrase it that way. Martin Luther translated it, Who hath believed our preaching? And that is not too bad a translation. Um, I don't think Isaiah means that nobody has believed but rather he is asking a rhetorical question, and by means of that question he shows that very few have believed. He expresses concern and really amazement that so few have believed what has been reported concerning the servant. Notice also that he equates believing concerning the servant with the manifestation of the power of God, for the arm of the Lord means simply the power of the Lord. Upon whom has the power of the Lord been revealed? And there is comfort for us in that very fact, especially for those of us who are in the ministry. When we preach the gospel, no matter how much effort we put into it, no matter how much we do, if the power of the Lord is not manifest, no one will believe the gospel. When someone does believe the gospel, it is evidence that the power of the Lord has been revealed. And then the prophet goes on and shows in rather general terms the humiliation of the servant. For he shall grow up before him, that is, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, that is, appearance. And when we should see him, there is no appearance that we should desire him. This is just a general statement of the humiliation of the servant. He is not the kind that would attract others to him. We do not look to him as a leader. We did not turn toward him. And then the prophet goes on to bring out the details of this humiliation, showing why it was that he was rejected. He is a man of sorrows. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. There the details are given. Notice that twice the word despised occurs here, despised by men, and then the phrase rejected of men, a man of sorrows. Rejected of men, the word used is ish, which refers to the better class of men. In a number of these languages, there are two words for man. Uh, for example, in Greek, you have anthropos, which means man generally, the ordinary run of men, but you have aner, which means the noble person. And so in Hebrew, adam simply means mankind, but ish means the better class of men. He is rejected of ishim, of the better class of men, a man of sorrows, Ish, Makovoth. He is rejected of men, a man. The two words are side by side. Rejected of men, a man. He is himself one of those. But a man characterized by his sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And then again, this sad refrain, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We would not look upon him. We did not esteem him. We did not know him for what he was. The prophet then goes on in the fourth verse to bring us into the heart of the mystery that he explains here, and that is this, that he, surely our griefs he hath borne, and our sins he carried, and our sorrows he carried them, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now there is here what you may call a chiastic arrangement. In the third verse, you have the order sorrows, griefs. In the fourth verse, you have the order griefs, sorrows. A, B, then B, A, which makes the, uh, allows a certain amount of variety in the narration. Now, what we are being told here is that he was indeed a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with griefs. That is perfectly true. But they are not his own. For now Isaiah says, surely, and there's something almost triumphant in that word, surely our griefs, he carried them. Our sicknesses, our sorrows, he bore them. <coughs> Note that contrast in the pronouns. Our and he. Our sorrows, he bore them. Here there is not only, you see, a quantitative contrast, but there is being introduced a qualitative contrast. It is not only one versus many, but it is one that is innocent as over against many that are guilty. He is a man of sorrows, but those sorrows are our sorrows. They belong to us. Those sicknesses are ours. Yet we, we misunderstood him. We esteemed him stricken of God, smitten and afflicted. Then in the fifth verse, the prophet takes us to the very heart of the whole thing. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, if I may bring out the original force, it is more this. But he was pierced through, and the word implies being pierced through even unto death. He was pierced through for our transgressions. To paraphrase, because we had transgressed, he was pierced through. I know that the phrase for our transgressions is a strange phrase. We say, I take medicine for my cold, which we don't really mean. We take medicine to get rid of our cold. And so here he is pierced for our transgressions means because we had transgressed, he was pierced even unto death. Now the word transgression originally seems to have had reference to the field of politics to refer to the uh, rebellion against a king or overlord. But here it means simply the deliberate breaking of God's law. You and I had transgressed. We had broken God's law deliberately, and because we had transgressed, he was pierced through unto death. And the second phrase says essentially the same thing. He was bruised for our iniquities. That is, because we had done iniquitously, which means sinfully, almost crookedly, we had done iniquitously, so he was bruised again, or pierced, uh, bruised even unto death. I don't think this means that our iniquities crushed him by being a burden upon him, but rather he was crushed because we had done iniquitously. Now this brings us to the very heart of the whole matter. <clears throat> he was pierced, he was crushed, and that because we had sinned. We had done what was evil. Now how are we to explain this? The next phrase really gives us the answer. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
That is, the chastisement that procured our peace was upon him. The theme of the prophecy of Isaiah is peace. Our great need is peace. And if there is to be peace, there must be chastisement. That chastisement falls not upon us, but it falls upon him. Let's look at that word peace a bit more carefully. It means more than a cessation of hostilities among nations. The word itself implies a wholeness and fullness of well-being. And what it means, I think, is the peace of God. Not that you and I are at peace with God, but that God is at peace with us. That is the greatest need of mankind. That's our greatest need here this afternoon, that God be at peace with us. If God is not at peace with us, then there is nothing in this life, nothing for us whatever. We need the peace of God. Now, I don't have too much sympathy with those who tell us that they don't believe in a God who has to have an atonement, that has to have somebody else suffer for our sins, that that's small and petty and so on of God. I don't have very much sympathy with that sort of thing because it ignores the fundamental fact of human sin. If human sin is not a very serious thing after all, then you don't need a very profound doctrine of the atonement. If human sin is not important, then it doesn't matter what theory of the atonement you have. It isn't important at all. But if sin is what the Bible says it is, if our sin deserves eternal death, then we need the atonement of the Son of God the substitutionary atonement that the Bible sets forth. And the reason why men hold low views of the atonement is that they hold low views of the heinousness of sin. If sin is what the Bible says it is, then it is only the Son of God <coughs> that can be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement falls upon him. That means, you see, he is our substitute. There must be chastisement. To use New Testament language, without shedding of blood there is no remission. According to this passage, if we are to have the peace of God, there must be chastisement. That chastisement has not been placed upon us, for we never could bear it. But it was placed upon him. And because that chastisement was placed upon him, then we have the peace of God. That is what Isaiah is saying. Now let us look at these verses a bit more carefully. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Grief and sorrow there are used uh, spiritually or as symbols for sin. He has, what it means is, he has borne our sins. He has carried our iniquities. But how can one person bear the sins of another? How can you bear sin? The verb simply means to pick up and carry. How can you carry sin? Well, obviously you can't do it in the sense that you can pick up a book and carry it. Sin is immaterial. Sin is spiritual. It's not tangible. You can't pick sin up as you pick up a book. But what is meant here is that the Lord has borne the guilt of our sin. For if a man is a sinner, it means that his heart is corrupt, and it means that he is guilty before God. And the phrase to bear a man's sin means to bear the guilt of his sin. 
Well, how can one bear the guilt of another's sin? Guilt involves liability to blameworthiness and liability to punishment, does it not? And to say that one bears the guilt of another's sin is to say that he bears the punishment that was due to that person for his sin. And so when I say the servant has borne the guilt of my sin, what I mean is that the servant was punished in my place. He is my substitute. And this is the vicarious atonement that is being taught in these verses. We do not do justice to the scriptural doctrine of the atonement if we refuse to see its penal character. Christ was punished on our behalf. That punishment that fell, should have fallen upon us was borne by him in our room and in our stead. You see then that what Isaiah is presenting here is really the gospel in the Old Testament. It is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. And that is the only thing that will make it possible for God to give to us his peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, said Christ. And we read also of the peace of God that passeth understanding. We make a grave mistake if we think that men whose hearts are at enmity with God will ever be able to establish peace upon this earth. There is only one place where peace may be found, and that is in God himself. And God is not unjust in dispersing this peace to us. He gives it to us only because his own justice has been satisfied, and he may honorably and justly tell us that our sins are forgiven. Our sins, deserved eternal death. But there is one, even the servant of the Lord, who bore the punishment that was due to us for our sins. And because he bore our iniquities, we receive his righteousness. And God tells us that we stand in right relationship with him, and we have the peace of God that passeth understanding.